Welcome back once again to Principles of Environmental Toxicology. Today's lecture, Environmental Chemicals 3, is a continuation of our series of lectures, case studies uh, that we are going to present here in this course. Today what we do is transition uh, last two lectures, the first two in this series, were actually discussions of inorganic uh, toxicants in the environment and case studies associated with that. The next two will focus a little bit more on the organic side of the equation, organic chemicals. We'll talk about some D-napples, some dense non-aqueous phase liquids, as well as some L-napples or petroleum hydrocarbon types contaminants. What you want to recognize in all of these case studies is the history, the environmental history of the contamination. And what you find is that many of these case studies are actually from the historical age where we did bad, but we didn't necessarily know we were doing bad. Uh, governmental recommendations to even do surface land disposal in just uh, ditches uh, was prevalent at the time in the 40s and the 50s and some of the domains, time domains that we discuss in the next few case studies. In today's case studies, what we'd like to do are learning objectives. We're going to try to explore the Montana Pole Superfund site. Uh, this is an interesting uh, Superfund site in that it uh, is uh, chlorinated hydrocarbon chemicals, and we'll talk about how the individuals on the site have managed what in fact was a Superfund site, which has been at this point in time largely uh, cleaned up uh, in terms of remediation and en engineering, environmental engineering to limit the potential contamination and migration off this particularly contaminated site. We'll talk about some of the methods for the treatment, the in situ treatment. We'll talk about bioremediation as well as physical chemical engineering treatments like removal from waters using activated charcoal. In the next case study, we'll explore the history, the science, and some of the risk issues associated with an extraordinarily large uh, contaminated site, also a Superfund site, uh, although it is uh, an exceptionally contaminated one because it has to do with PCBs. This is a point source of PCBs from the major manufacturing center uh, in the uh, headwaters of the Hudson River in New York. And the Hudson River, for those of you who don't know East Coast uh, uh, geography, is a tremendously important water body in the eastern seaboard. And it drains into the uh, New York Harbor, where in fact you have as many as 8 million receptors. The population in the contaminated area is quite large. What we're going to do in this particular case study is explore some of the challenges. Uh, watch a video so you'll get a lot of uh, pictorials of some of the challenges of this particular contamination, and as well the migration of this dense non-aqueous phase liquid. But first what we'll do is talk about the Montana pole site. And this has to do with a pole and treating site. Uh, we treat poles and uh, telephone poles and fence posts to limit the potential uh, degradation of the wood products when they're used in outdoor applications. This facility is also in Butte, Montana, so it's actually uh, just a few miles away from the Berkeley pit. And in a certain sense, the two had a shared history because many of the timbers that were used in the mines of the copper mining operations around Butte, including the Berkeley pit, uh, were actually treated and processed at the Montana pole site. From 1946 to 1983, the facility uh, preserved these poles and these bridge timbers uh, with pentachlorophenol PCP. We've talked about this as being a uh, persistent bioaccumulative and toxic chemical, one of those PBTs that we're highly concerned with in the environment. 
Some of the other hazardous uh, substances, including some petroleum hydrocarbons, were discharged into the ditch next to the plant, and this actually ran towards Silver Bow Creek. You remember Silver Bow Creek was actually mentioned in the Berkeley Pit video because, in fact, uh, some of the drainage of the mining impacted areas actually impacted Silver Bow Creek in terms of metal concentrations. So you get a sense that Silver Bow, for a good share of recent history, was a very contaminated uh, surface water body. I'll give you some ge geography here. This is the state of Montana, largely a square. Butte, Montana is over in the southwestern uh, part of the state. We've seen an overview of the city of Butte. This particular, particular site is in a residential and industrial area, so we have mixed use around that. And we talked about risk assessment and that when we have mixed use residences near these contaminated industrial areas, the risk assessment and as well as risk management become quite a bit more complicated. The nearest residence is about 100 yards away, so this is actually quite close to a highly contaminated area. The nearest private well is located about a fifth of a mile down gradient, down hydraulic gradient from this site. So the potential for contamination is quite high. Various federal and state agencies have been addressing this uh, for uh, almost uh, 20, 25 years now in terms of the contamination and mitigation of contamination on site. Uh, a lot of this has to do with addressing groundwater contamination, which is the greatest risk. The contaminated soil on site is currently being treated with uh, bioremediation, so using microorganisms, dehydrohalogenation uh, microorganisms in an on-site land treatment unit. And you'll see that uh, how this actually occurs. We don't go into the data of level of success, but typically this is something that has to be maintained for uh, several years. Some of the removal actions, and Superfund is a regulatory authority to uh, make the responsible parties actually remove or treat and pay for the removal and treatment of contamination on site. There are about 16,000 gallons of pentachlorophenol uh, and contaminated waste oil on site. Those were sent to a licensed disposal facility in Utah in the 1980s. Uh, incineration was the method of uh, destruction removal for that particular contaminant. In the spring of 1998, about 40 drums of PCP uh, contaminated sludge were actually also shipped to Utah. The state of Montana signed an agreement uh, with a contractor in 1999 to dispose of all the remaining site debris. And quite often, just like we talked about in uh, the Bunker Hill site, in these highly contaminated historical industrial sites, uh, the uh, buildings, the outbuildings, uh, storage sheds sometimes are major point sources of contamination. The wood, the metal, uh, the materials on site are contaminated with the toxicant of interest for that site. The groundwater and all the soils at this particular site uh, were contaminated with pentachlorophenol. Uh, and because there has been a history of fires and normal natural processes, uh, dioxins, furans, uh, various flammable liquids from various wood oils on site, some VOCs or volatile organic compounds and various metals uh, that were used, such as arsenic used to treat uh, poles. The sludge is uh, contaminated with uh, these compounds as well, and so this is a particularly messy, nasty area. Uh, PCP has been detected in uh, concentrations of concern in nearby Silver Bow Creek. 
The site was proposed for listing uh, in the uh, national priorities list, and we'll talk about the NPL and Superfund listing when we discuss environmental law later in this particular course. But this particular site was listed in 1986. The final date of its addition to the, uh, it was proposed in 1986. The final date uh, for addition was in 1987. The cleanup uh, was not significant. Uh, it's significant if you're paying for it, but on a relative scale to some Superfund sites, which can total up into the billions of dollars, this particular site, because it was somewhat contained, was $38 million, uh, and this this was came in terms of funding the activities from a settlement with the PRP or potentially responsible parties. PRP is a legal term. It has to do with those who have... Uh, some level of uh, joint or several responsibility uh, uh, in terms of the uh, actions and activities that contaminated the site. We'll talk about the legal definition of PRP in our uh, environmental law section. The risks associated with the site, uh, uh, it's uh, somewhat uh, contained. It's mobile in terms of potential for contaminating groundwater or surface water runoff. Obviously, accidentally swallowing or having direct contact with the groundwater, surface water, or any of the contaminated soil or sludge can be hazardous to human health. And obviously, in the dry season, and this is a good part of the summertime, the contaminants may enter the air uh, during cleanup operations or just dust-up operations. And this has the potential using atmospheric deposition of contaminated dusts and soils uh, to actually uh, present a risk for the uh, downwinders in of this particular site. We talked about some of these downwinders are, in fact, residential areas. The cleanup remedy that was proposed and then finally approved was bioremediation of the soil and groundwater, and this included some excavation, about approximately 200,000 cubic yards of contaminated soil. So this contaminated soil had to be removed but to transfer it on site to some of the bioremediation galleys that you'll see in some of the videos we've brought together today. There was construction of a land treatment unit to biologically uh, treat the soil. Uh, there's different approaches to doing uh, different sorts of contaminants. The term hydrocarbons typically use anaerobic bacteria, pardon me, aerobic bacteria, and so it requires a high level of turnover and infiltration of oxygen to degrade these petroleum hydrocarbons. PCP, to get the halogenation occurring, typically these are anaerobic bacteria and they require exclusion of oxygen uh, from the treated soil, and you'll see how that's done in this video. It required construction of a carbon water treatment plant, and you'll see this in the video. Uh, this was uh, a pump and treat approach. Uh, this is probably the first time you'll see a pump and treat approach, and so uh, when we talk about it in the next lecture as well, for the Chemdyne site, you'll have an idea of what goes on in pumping and treating. And you can also see just by looking at the hardware and the facilities associated with pump and treat that this is typically an expensive option. Bioremediation is typically a relatively inexpensive uh, operation. There was, uh, after uh, the treatment and removal uh, by carbon filtration and uh, removal of especially the petroleum hydrocarbons uh, from the contaminated water, there was a reinjection of the treated water into the nearby groundwater. We're going to do a couple of videos back-to-back -back here. These are case presentations. Uh, these are videos I shot, so apology for the video and sound quality. Uh, the first one is by Randy Huffsmith. He's a supervising engineer on the site. 
uh, in, on the Montana Pole site. And the second one, another one of the field engineers on the Montana Pole site, Jamie Weiss. I'm Randy Huffsmith. I'm with Camp Presser and McKee. We're standing at the uh, Montana Pole site uh, in Butte, Montana. It's a super fun site. Uh, it's undergone a number of years of environmental cleanup. Uh, we're going to do a brief tour of the water treatment facility and describe some of the components of that facility. Uh, here, this way to the east, is an underground trench that's buried uh, to recover groundwater. There's an oil skimming unit in that trench to, to pull the oil, uh, pentachlorophenol, um, and oil mix off the groundwater surface, and then the dissolved uh, groundwater and contamination goes into this pretreatment facility here that, that we'll go to in a minute. Uh, the site was originally contaminated with a pentachlorophenol from a wood treating operation, uh, timbers for the mines, telephone poles, and sorts of uh, uh, wood products were treated um, to keep from rotting with this material, a PCP mixed with an oil carrier. This uh, oil carrier and PCP was spilled in the site, uh, ended up into the groundwater, ended up contaminating soils. Um, we're currently under a record of decision, um, uh, cleaning up scenario um, via EPA and uh, the Montana Department of Environmental Quality to be uh, cleaned up on this. Yeah. This is the normal water separator unit. Uh, basically, a series of baffles contaminated water from the trenches is discharged into the normal water separator. Uh, um, in separate separation techniques, uh, water moves through the separator and leaves the oil on the top surface. And then the only thing that gets started out of this system would be uh, dissolved phase product and dissolved water. With the non-aqueous phase liquid, the floating product left in this unit where we can skim it off and how it can uh, be incinerated with a kind of hazardous waste This tank that you see in the background is where the oil is pumped from the oil-water separator and from the skimmer pumps that are in the recovery system. It has secondary containment, leak detection. Uh, the more paper trucks will come in and pull that oil to an incinerator. This is the insurance uh, sump building. Um, water is treated from the oil-water separator and then put into this insurance sump. Um, so that's with some storage capacity. The water is then pumped from this insurance sump building into the water treatment uh, facility where we do the, the summer water treatment with very activated carbon. Looking at the annual 
activated cold infiltration unit. Most water here from the Indian stock comes in through here through these micron filters and then discharges um, through these very activated carbon units. Uh, there's a couple units in series uh, here, a total of four big drums. Once the water is cleaned uh, through the carbon unit, it then discharges to the city of water tank and then it blocks the gravity feeds to the volcano. Clean water at that time meets the, uh, uh, the cleanup criteria of one part per million pentachlorophenol. Uh, 
some of the problems we've had with our biofiles is that uh, it seems like we had too many clays in the soil and with the tarps on them they've gotten compacted and we're having problems with uh, channeling of the water and air and so it doesn't seem like we're getting really efficient use or efficient treatment of soil um, as it's not all exposed to the air and the water uh, like we're at the land treatment unit it can uh, we can spread the water evenly and tilling the soil mixes without an aerate all the soil quite a bit better. Um, towards the end of the pile you can see some of the lumbers that were just got mashed into the ground and um, but that's what they treated with the penta and the diesel fuel um, and that's that mixture is what's being treated for the soil and the water treatment. Um, nutrients can be added through our uh, sump system. Uh, it's just added to the water as it's sent out and then that water just drains down through and then the bottom is also like the land treatment unit HDPE line and uh, there's a drain at each end and then it's drained to a sump and um, just recycled back to the retention pond. Uh, video clips give you again a sense of these uh, remediation sites uh, associated with the Montana uh, pole site. Uh, this is a super fun site that has been largely uh, cleaned up at this point in time. I have some links on the course module that will let you go into the EPA site uh, associated with managing the cleanup uh, in this particular location. Our next case study uh, and final one for the day, a fairly involved one, this is in the Hudson River in New York, and this is the Hudson River PCB Superfund site, an extraordinarily complex uh, site uh, and a wonderful opportunity, uh, if you will, in terms of the principles of environmental toxicology to learn about the impacts of these dense non-aqueous phase liquids. This particular site encompasses the entire Hudson River from Hudson Falls to the Battery in New York Harbor, and so that's about 200 river miles. And if you think about the population uh, and uh, diversity of terrain along that way, this is a significant potential for impact. Uh, there are different hydrologic regimes that distinguish the upper region of the river, uh, higher flowing, and then down as you get into the tidal basin area of the lower Hudson River around New York Harbor. Uh, during the 30-year period that ended in 1977, there were actually two general electric facilities that used PCBs in the manufacture of electrical capacitors. Uh, as you drive down the street, look up to the telephone poles, and you'll see these uh, Oh, typically gray, black, uh, sometimes brown. Uh, looks like very large drums at the top of power poles. Uh, these are electrical capacitors, and PCBs were a very popular dielectric uh, that were used in there because of the uh, thermal uh, conductivity uh, requirements of uh, these capacitors and the electrical conductivity requirement of these capacitors. And so these essentially were fluids uh, of these dielectric PCB compounds. And so these were in popular use. These were the major U.S. manufacturing facilities. However, between 1957 and 1975, about 0.2 to about 1.3 million pounds of pentachlorobiphenyls were actually estimated to have been discharged into the local environment and the aquatic ecosystem of the Hudson River. This gives you an idea in terms of geography. The headwaters, this is New York State, looks like a shoe. And down here is Manhattan, so here's New York City uh, down in this uh, area down here. 
And so you can see that the, the uh, river uh, actually does discharge into uh, a very populated area, but that the headwaters up here uh, where um, the actual discharge site started, there's a 200-mile uh, corridor of the Hudson River in the eastern part of New York State. Uh, there was a break point at Federal Dam, uh, and uh, this was one of the dams in the upper reaches just down from the GE sites. Uh, but uh, there are, uh, there's a difference in terms of the distribution above uh, Federal Dam and below Federal Dam. Uh, there's some dynamics in terms of the migration, uh, whether or not the PCBs are mixing with the fine grain sediments, what how they're behaving with the coarse grain sediments how they're interacting with the local uh, biology in terms of microbiology and the potential for essentially in situ natural bioremediation as well as interjecting itself into a bioaccumulative pathway. It, these compounds are extraordinarily lipophilic and have the ability to actually magnify up the local food chain. The pathway, uh, as it turns out, in the river itself, the, the PCBs discharged to the river actually uh, tended to adhere to the sediments. Uh, they accumulated downstream with the sediments because of their density. Uh, they actually settled into a fairly large impounded pool uh, behind the former what was referred to as Fort Edward Dam. And this was near River Mile 194 and a half. And this is 194 miles up from uh, New York Harbor. So this is fairly far up uh, the river. And so there was this man-made barrier because of a dam, uh, the low water, which would contain the dense non-aqueous phase liquids that might scoot along the bottom in the sediments and get washed down, actually collected there. Unfortunately, uh, for everyone concerned, uh, the dam was removed in 1973 because it was deteriorating. And in fact, uh, they didn't really understand that this dam was extraordinarily important in sequestering, physically sequestering, uh, the PCBs that were coming down the river. During the subsequent spring flooding, contaminated sediments were actually scoured uh, and released downstream. The exposed sediments from this former pool uh, behind the dam, uh, and they, these are called remnant deposits, have been the subject of uh, several cleanup efforts. Uh, you can see uh, in some con highly contaminated areas like this, pools of uh, this translucent, uh, almost mirror-like uh, denapple uh, collecting at the bottom of the water body. These remnant deposits stretch from River Mile 197 to 195, and so there still is contaminated zones where somewhat pure product is apparently pooling between Mile 197 and 195. Although there is pure product, there is still a finite amount of solubility, and especially solubility processes associated with organic matter that allow this to be released into the water column. In 1978 and 1984, the New York uh, Department of Ecology actually collected the river sediment cores uh, from the Fort Edward Dam site and next to the dam near what was referred to as the Thompson Island Dam. Uh, these are at mile 194 and 195, uh, 194 and 188 uh, downstream. The results indicated that the bulk of the PCBs had been distributed into distinct zones or hotspots, as you would imagine in terms of a non-aqueous phase, non-soluble fluid, uh, denser than water, essentially pooling and collecting in uh, zones. 
these results, uh, these zones are distributed off the main navigational channels. Uh, main navigational channels are the deepest part where the flow is high. And in fact, uh, um, good correlation between the hotspots and the finer grain sediments. These finer grain sediments did act as a physical barrier, a sequestering uh, body, if you will. In December 1999, the regulatory authorities did a human health risk assessment, uh, and they determined that given the concentrations that were being observed in the, the Hudson River fishery, that there was a cancer risk and non-cancer uh, acute toxicosis hazard, uh, a chronic toxicosis hazard from consumption of game fish. And so the area was posted for catch and release uh, at that time. In terms of remediation, there's been a lot of dredging and product removal. Uh, if you can find pools of this material or sequester pools of the material, dredging it or pumping it uh, and uh, uh, taking it away for hazardous waste treatment is appropriate. Uh, biodegradation, is, and especially given the complexity of this site, in situ biodegradation uh, is uh, one that is being studied and encouraged. Uh, there is a uh, debate about natural attenuation and natural processes, including biodegradation and active dredging. The concern being that active dredging is going to stir up and uh, release much more of the PCBs that would be released than would be released. Uh, by uh, in terms of natural sequestration processes. Uh, source control is extraordinarily complex. Source control is extraordinarily expensive in this situation. So those uh, individuals who have a dog in this fight, whether it be environmental groups, uh, the PRPs, potentially responsible parties, obviously GE in this particular case, have some debates about appropriateness of different approaches to cleaning up. Uh, and there have been uh, well over several decades now of uh, debates back and forth on the best way to do it. An EPA in 2001 actually made a determination under Superfund law to dredge it, to go ahead and start uh, pulling out the contaminated sediments to be more active about it uh, rather than letting nature take over and perhaps taking decades. Let's do some active source control. Case presentation we're going to have today is uh, a video called the Hudson River PCB Story, a Toxic Heritage. Uh, this is by an environmental group actually active on the Hudson River, uh, and it's called the Hudson River Sloop Clearwater. Um, there is a minimal amount of uh, uh, politicking that uh, in this particular uh, uh, video. That's one of the reasons I chose it. Uh, there is sufficient uh, amount. You'll hear the music. You'll see something that's in, in, is somewhat intended to change your mind. Uh, I think that most students in principles of environmental toxicology at this stage of your education, you're critical thinkers. You can make out uh, the truth from perhaps the uh, any political loading you might uh, uh, see in this particular one. One of the things that you will come away from is that this is, uh, no matter how you spin the story, uh, a significant, uh, in the case of environmental toxicology, and a significant uh, point responsibility for General Electric in terms of cleanup, and a specifically a, uh, a major, major risk vector for the communities uh, that grew up uh, near the Hudson River uh, that have used the fishery. I fished there. Uh, as a child when I was uh, raised in New York, uh, going on Boy Scout trips uh, up the Hudson uh, uh, at least once a summer. Uh, with that, uh, we'll show this video, the Hudson River PCB story. Mm -hmm. 
Hi, I'm Andy Melee. I've lived in the Hudson Valley most of my life, and here on the banks of the Hudson River in Kingston for over 20 years. I can tell you that this is no ordinary place. In the 19th century, Hudson River School painters such as Frederick Church brought the scenery of the Hudson Valley to millions of people, and writers like James Fenimore Cooper brought it to millions more. It's the birthplace of America's love affair with the environment and the birthplace of American environmental law. But in 1947, one of America's biggest corporations began dumping a chemical called PCB, polychlorinated biphenyl, into the river. By the time PCBs were banned in 1977, over a million pounds had entered the Hudson River ecosystem, most of which remains to this day. And what may prove to be a similar amount is trapped in the bedrock under the two factories that processed the PCBs, seeping into the Hudson even today, 20 years after production stopped. Health effects from exposure to PCBs fall in three general categories. Cancer of several types, hormonal and reproductive disruption, and direct effects on the brain and nervous system. Scientists tell us that all human beings have PCBs in their bodies. That includes you and me. I had my blood tested. Here's what my PCB count looks like. Each bar indicates one type of PCB. Some are more dangerous, some less dangerous. This one, for instance, is called 245245, and it's the one I have the most of. It's consistent with the PCBs in the Hudson. PCBs enter the food chain from events like the General Electric spill, and they bioaccumulate. They build up as much as a million times so that animals and humans at the top of the food chain have the most concentrated levels of PCBs in their body fat. My PCB totals are 200 parts per billion. Many Americans have PCB levels in this range, and there are many sources. To determine if General Electric PCBs are responsible for Hudson Valley blood contamination, we need a full-scale sampling of levels in area residents. One thing, however, is certain. I never ask to have PCBs in my body. I don't want PCBs in my body, and I am deeply concerned about my family's health and future. We have an Eat None Health Advisory for Women and Children for all species of Hudson River fish from all locations. Eating contaminated fish is considered one of the most potent routes of exposure to PCBs. And it's been well documented here on the Hudson River that despite our health advisories, um, people are fishing recreationally and eating their fish and passing their fish on to other people to eat, often um, their families or, or, or relatives. What are the risks that we all face from exposure to PCBs? And what can we do to reduce or even eliminate these risks? This is what a PCB molecule looks like. The chlorine atoms attached to the outside of the two carbon rings are typical. And in this state, the PCBs are oily, heavier than water, and are often found attached to the small particles that make up river sediment. After the PCBs have been in the environment for a while, bacteria nibble away at the chlorine atoms like this. These PCBs are more water-soluble. They can lift off the sediment, dissolve in the river water, and even evaporate into the air we breathe. This is a machine used to sample PCBs in the air above river water and expose tidal flats. What we're doing here is we're measuring that uh, PCBs that are being emitted from the sediments as the sediment dries. And what we have here is a fluorocell tube which traps the PCBs on the fluorocell as they're drawn through. Um, we have two, one which will have actually inside the sampler which will uh, draw the air over it 
and then we'll have one which is kind of a control which just draws a blank air from the outside. It's, a, it's 200 miles of polluted water and uh, a large amount of polluted sediment which it exposed every 12 hours. And then when it floods, a whole lot more sediment uh, comes out and is deposited on the banks. Now, it's obvious that that's going to evaporate into the air. Now, not being an atmospheric scientist, I don't know where it goes. But one of them told me that in fact it does go north, the whatever it is up there, the upper atmosphere. And in fact, we have a very important problem around the Hudson's Bay with Inuit people that live there. Uh, their breast milk is highly contaminated. Partly because, well mostly because they eat seals and the seals eat the, uh, the fish and the fish are in fact getting contaminated by fallout from somewhere. And this is the most likely place. Scientists are often alerted to the toxic effects of chemicals after they are observed in wildlife. Birds, fish and other animals often play the role of indicator species, pointing the way to further study which can lead to better understanding of potential human health problems. The level of PCB contamination that we found in these birds, as measured by total tissue concentrations, as well as calculated dioxin equivalents, if these levels were found in more sensitive species of birds, like Caspian terns, Forster's terns, double-crested cormorants, they would be causing devastating population level effects. I think we need to uh, think beyond the tree swallow uh, and consider what PCBs in the, in the Hudson River might be doing to other birds that are similarly exposed, shorebirds like the solitary sandpiper, birds a little bit further up the food chain like the greenback heron or the osprey. Very importantly, the bald eagle, a large number of them over winter not far from here and uh, one or two pair are attempting to nest in the middle and upper sections of the Hudson River. Well, I've seen outright death of wildlife from PCBs, from nothing more subtle than lethal levels of PCBs in the brain of a bird from their position in the food chain. Uh, we get a call a few years ago about a great horned owl that was acting weak along the Hudson River in Catskill, New York. So we went down and we got the owl. The owl came in, it was emaciated, uh, it was showing tremors, and it died about an hour or two after we got it back in the lab. It didn't have any infectious or parasitic diseases when we examined it. Didn't have any uh, physical injuries. Uh, it didn't have anything that we could see that could have uh, caused uh, that emaciation was an adult owl, had a very small spleen, uh, which made me suspicious that there might be something going on like with PCBs that might be suppressing the immune system. Anyway, when we looked at it, it had over 300 parts per million of PCBs in its brain. I would allege to you that the ultimate pollution is pollution that affects the cognitive ability of the next generation. A fast-growing body of current research indicates that PCBs have destructive effects on the human brain. What I would like to present to you today is evidence that PCBs directly affect the brain, not mediated through anything else. And while I would acknowledge that our total body of evidence for that rather uh, dramatic statement is perhaps uh, not all in, but I, I would suggest that uh, the book that can be written in a couple of years will focus on direct effects 
of PCBs on nervous tissue and, uh, and the health hazard to humans that is posed from this. Parkinson's disease is a disease where you lack dopamine in the brain. Almost every drug that's used to treat mental illness is a drug that acts on dopamine receptors or dopamine content. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter which is intimately involved in mood, in behavior, in mental illness. And what we're demonstrating is that the PCBs that had been thought to be non-toxic are capable of reducing the amount of this transmitter and Siegel and his colleagues have demonstrated that this is through an inhibition of the, of the uh, enzyme tyrosine hydroxylase, which is the rate-limiting enzyme for the synthesis of dopamine. Another equally frightening way that PCBs can harm people is through some subtle and not-so-subtle impacts on the glands and chemical transmitters that control our ability to successfully develop, adapt, and reproduce. What I'm referring to here are the natural chemical messages that come from our genes that become the instructions for that next generation. How to grow, how to develop, how to mature from a fetus to an adult. Those messages, after all, are, those messages are life itself. Without them, there is no next generation, with no exception. And if those messages arrive distorted or disrupted or diminished, or defiled in, in some way or another, altered by some unexpected interference, then the fetus that receives them grows up and becomes something different than it would have been. To begin with, everyone in this room is carrying several hundred synthetic chemicals that were not part of human chemistry just two generations ago. And some of these contamination levels are within striking distance of ranges known to cause reproducible effects in the lab. How widespread is widespread? As far as science can tell, there hasn't been a baby born on the planet for at least two decades without some degree of fetal exposure. Some more exposure, some less, but none, none. How widespread is widespread? These contaminants travel to the ends of the earth. One of the tragic stories that we tell in the book is about scientists working on the St. Lawrence River in Canada, studying the impact on natives, native peoples, of eating at the top of a heavily contaminated food chain, one not unlike the one here in Poughkeepsie uh, because of PCB contaminations in the Hudson. These scientists wanted to find a control group. They wanted to find a community of people who who wasn't contaminated so that they could compare that group with the exposed group. So they went to the high Arctic, far northern Canada, far from civilization, far from what they thought were sources of contamination, and they selected as their control group a group, a, a village of Inuit Eskimos, the native people of the Canadian Arctic. As they did their studies, they discovered that this, this community was even more contaminated than those living along the St. Lawrence because of the, the ways that these compounds are spread globally through atmospheric transport. This book, co-authored by Dr. Myers, Dr. Theo Colborn, and Diane Dumanowski, chronicles the discovery of endocrine disruption. When Rachel Carson first raised the alarm about DDT and other chemicals like PCBs, we didn't have the technology to produce test results like this. 
Now that we can routinely identify toxics in parts per trillion, we can see how widespread this problem has really become. First of all, the fetus is exquisitely sensitive. At extraordinarily low contamination levels, you can change, you can alter the path of development taken by a fetus. An important point here is that the science on which this is based does not rest on the classic toxicological experiment with cancer. It does not rest on extrapolating high-dose curves down to the low end of exposure. The lab work, in fact, has led to, that's been done on this issue, has led to excellent understanding of the basic mechanisms that are involved. In fact, if you look carefully at some of this work, you, you realize that we know much more about the basic mechanisms of this issue than we do about many of the factors leading to the causation of cancer. The work over the first several decades on this issue focused largely on man-made chemicals that were capable of mimicking estrogen. But within the last five years, we've seen that expand, first to compounds that block estrogen and now to things that interfere with testosterone, thyroid, and other parts of the endocrine system. Work with the best known of the endocrine disruptors, particularly diethylstilbestrol, or DES, has led to great scientific confidence about the predictive value of lab animal studies for anticipating human effects. The scientist and the father in me argues that we should take care of this problem now so that our kids can focus on all those other problems, all those other challenges they're facing as they grow up. How did the PCBs get into the river in the first place? This is the Hudson Falls GE plant, a short distance from Glens Falls, New York. A mile south of here is GE's Fort Edward plant, where the PCBs were also used and dumped. The Hudson Falls plant site was acquired by General Electric in the late 1940s, and it had been a paper mill in the past. Uh, production of capacitors was uh, ongoing from the late 40s until probably the late 1980s when it was consolidated at the Fort Edward plant a little further downstream. Uh, PCB was used at the, the two plants probably until just before uh, its ban. I think it was about 1975 when uh, PCB use at Fort Edward and Hudson Falls was, was discontinued. After that, they went to some other uh, substitute dielectric fluids that we also find underneath the plant site as well. Um, PCB use at the plant site it was brought in on rail cars from the, from the producer. It was offloaded from the rail cars into a tank farm that was refined and then placed into capacitors. Uh, as you can see behind me, the, uh, the large red and white building is building one where most of the filling of the capacitors was done. Uh, it was taken from the tanks behind building one after it was refined and placed in the capacitors in the basement of building one. The capacitors were uh, aluminum cans of various sizes that had the uh, capacitor dielectric fluid was uh, placed in it by flood filling where the, uh, the the people who were working on the capacitors would place the capacitors in large uh, vats of PCB, allow it to fill, then they were uh, lifted up and the tops were soldered on them and it was uh, sent on you know, down the production line. The, uh, the, the outflow, the 002 outflow that led into the river underneath the pump house was fed by a, a collection sump that was underneath building one. The collection sump was fed by a, a series of drains beneath the floor that were carved into the bedrock beneath the building. Uh, the bedrock on the other side of the river is very close to the surface. It's only between 5 and 10 feet, 15 feet below the surface. So when the building was constructed, it was blasted into the rock. So the collection system that fed the outfall was directly exposed to the rock in many locations. So when the PCB oil would get into this collection system, not only would it go straight to the river, but it was, could also seep directly into the rock. 
Now we know that the rock pit was fractured and that enormous quantities of PCB gradually saturated the bedrock. So much PCB material, in fact, that it is being forced out of tiny fissures in the rock under the falls and into the river. Twenty years after they were banned, General Electric's PCBs are still being discharged into the Hudson River. So far, we've been able to identify a large area of PCB contamination in the rock, but as of this date, we have not determined the ex entire extent of contamination. What we do know is that there is an area, probably about a third of the size of the plant site, at least 100 feet deep, which is partially saturated with PCB oil. We know that when we remove the sediment from the tailrace tunnel and from the Allen Mill, we removed over 50 tons of PCB material. What we've been able to identify both at this plant site and at the Fort Edward plant site downstream uh, exceeds 300 tons that we've been able to identify already as out in the environment. At the Fort Edward plant site, the geology is a little different. Uh, it's a significantly further down to rock. You have about 20 feet of sand, and then there's a uh, relatively impermeable lake clay. In a closed depression in the lake clay underneath the Fort Edward plant site, we've identified one area where there's over 300 tons of PCB. These men are some of GE's contractors. They walk out onto the exposed riverbed with protective clothing, turkey basters, and toxic waste containers to sop up the PCBs. Any large-scale cleanup downstream must wait until the bedrock, more than 200 feet below this plant, stops draining toxic chemicals into the river. What about a river cleanup? According to American law, the polluter, in this case General Electric, must pay to restore the environment to a reasonable facsimile of its former state. GE has been paying. Generally what we ask for, they give us. They have their, their corporate finances in mind, but uh, in general we've been in agreement as to what the steps are to take and what the path is we should go down to try to remediate these plant sites. GE's willingness to clean up the two plant sites stands in sharp contrast to its 20-year fight to avoid dealing with the river itself. The most recent EPA data show that 70% of the PCBs going into the lower Hudson are coming from the sediment in one deeply contaminated area just south of the two GE plants. We cannot do anything about this water until we get the sediment level lower. And we can only do that by removing the source sediment which is causing it. Dredging this hot spot would not remove all PCBs from the river, but would greatly hasten the day when one to 2,000 pounds of PCBs would no longer wash into the tidal Hudson every year. It would reduce the time needed for fish stocks to become safe to eat and reduce future human exposure to PCBs. How can we deal with 200 miles of river that have been poisoned? Will we ever be able to eat the fish again? A 200-mile shore-to-shore dredging operation is unthinkable. But what about dredging the hot spots where the highest levels of contamination exist? The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has been looking at this and other options since 1989. EPA has been uh, following dredging technologies, uh, and we've uh, selected uh, dredging for remedial action at six other PCB-contaminated sites. EPA does believe that dredging is possible uh, and can be implemented, and that there are remedial technologies available at this time. GE has been telling us for years that the river is cleaning itself, that PCBs will biodegrade to safe levels. But EPA scientists have shown that PCBs break down only partially, never completely. Once they break down, they become more mobile and maybe more dangerous than ever. Someone that lives down near the water is going to get about the equivalent of one very contaminated fish meal by living there all year. Now that isn't very much. That's the good news. But 
the bad news is that often it's our poorer segments of society whose homes are down in the floodplain. These are the kids that already have the problems with the old leaded paint in the house that's going to reduce IQ. So while uh, fish consumption appears to be the most significant source of exposure, we would not rule out uh, a fact that breathing the air may be harmful as well. More study is clearly needed, and we believe that the next critical step is to fund and conduct extensive blood sampling work among Hudson Valley residents. GE has also been telling us that dredging will create more problems than it solves. Showing us pictures of old clamshell dredges and slick publications like this, they claim the dredging will resuspend the PCBs and send them downriver. But dredging has come a long, long way in the last 20 years. Modern dredging technology is only half the answer, though. We need to find places to put the dredged material and communities willing to take it. The problem is, who can we ask to shoulder the PCB burden for the entire Hudson Valley? The answer is, of course, no one. But again, there are solutions that we need to be aware of. In 1994, Clearwater commissioned a report on treatment technologies for contaminated sediment. This report, along with other sources, demonstrates that there are lots of effective remedies available to reduce the PCB concentrations in Hudson River sediment to acceptable levels. With the sediment from the upper Hudson hotspot stripped of PCBs and other contaminants, such as dioxins and heavy metals, landfilled in a state-of-the-art containment system and immobilized, the long-term liability of the Hudson River PCB spill could finally be brought down to a tolerable level. We in the Hudson River Valley could already be experiencing subtle endocrine and neurotoxic effects from PCBs. I have come to believe, on the basis of the work that undergirds our book, that some of the basic ground rules by which new chemicals and their derivative products are developed, tested, and brought to market, that some of those ground rules, all of them, need new examination. If we are really serious about creating a world in which babies can grow up toxic-free, in which babies can grow up in ways that allow them to explore their full potential. As laws and commerce work today, too much of the real testing, too much of the real testing of chemicals takes place in the real world. It takes place in our bodies, in our children's bodies, and in the global ecosystem. It all comes down to human potential. As long as there are PCBs in the Hudson River, and as long as there are chemicals anywhere in the environment interfering with our hormones and our brains, we are the losers. We may never know what we might have been, what we might have become, what we might have accomplished, or how our children might have fulfilled their dreams had we lived in a world free of these chemicals. That is uh, a fairly extended but uh, uh, dramatic video. Uh, I think the footage of uh, the site, uh, some of the data, some of the interplay of the resource scientists and the regulatory scientists with obvious uh, activism uh, by the Hudson River Group there gives you at least a bit of the background for uh, some of the uh, dynamics, uh, the social uh, as well as the uh, scientific uh, dynamics of a very, very complicated and hazardous uh, site. 
Next time, what we'll do in the fourth and final series of these uh, case study lectures is talk about, again, some organic chemicals. We'll review the Chemdine site, uh, Chemdines in Hamilton, Ohio, where I spent the uh, majority of my high school years. Uh, we'll talk about how that site, uh, from a contaminated waste storage facility, actually uh, presented in the uh, 70s and 80s an opportunity for regulatory science uh, and a lot of environmental engineers to address some of the needs of, again, a complex uh, subsurface geology as well as a complex contamination profile. Also, with the uh, theme of complexity, we'll discuss and review a couple of historical sites. These are military or ex-military sites. Uh, Midway Island, uh, which was a refueling station for uh, American troops in World War II, and as well the Rocky Mountain Arsenal, RMA, uh, again a very complex site uh, associated with chemical warfare 